Welcome to Outspoken, where we dive deep into the topics and intersection of technology, money, business, and passion. I'm your host, Shana Cosgrove. What I love about systems engineering is that integration, problem solving across multiple areas. It's working with a team of people to accomplish something that's kind of greater than any single person can do. Take a chief engineer even. That chief engineer could be the smartest prodigy in the world, but if they can't share their knowledge effectively with the team and know how to work the team to impart that wisdom and then get the team working along that vision, then they're useless. I've even been cut off repeatedly when trying to make a point, just blatantly cut off repeatedly by multiple people in the room, not letting me finish my concern. And they didn't listen to me until another man in the room said, guys, she's right. We should be listening to her. Well, welcome to the podcast, Christina, Chris Petty, my good friend who I don't think I've had a real chat with you in forever. When do you think the last time we talked was? Years, years. Chris and I used to work side by side before Brian and I got married. She saw the romance from afar when it was still secret. <laughs> when I thought Brian, had, for some reason, I thought Brian had an English accent. <laughs> You're like, you should date that British guy. <laughs> How long have you been in Denver now? Uh, since 2014. So, Wow. Yeah. But you were like, we are done with Maryland. Going to Denver. <laughs> so we, yeah, we originally moved out here because John's family is out here. And so I actually had a great job at Northrop at the time. Like I was being groomed for leadership. I was rising really quickly in the ranks. But that was my last ditch attempt to um, suss out whether we were going to have kids or not, actually. I thought, well, if we're ever going to have kids... Maybe John will be more uh, open to the idea if he lives near his family. And so that's actually the real motivator for why I decided to move out to Denver. And did it change his mind? No. And actually, I decided I also (laughs) don't like kids. I would think sometimes being around family might. (laughs) (laughs) I miss you so much. We, I think we connected pretty quickly or I glommed onto you. This seems to be a theme in my podcast where I am like a super fan, but... I think I was the only woman on the team until you arrived. Yeah. I mean, I I just remember us being the only two women on the team. So I was glad that you were there so we could hang out. <laughs> when you're looking for friends at work, for me, I enjoy every once in a while having some female companionship instead of being around guys all the time. So I think we have sort of similar drive and willingness to speak up. Tell us about your job today. What do you do for a living? I've just wrapped up my job at Sierra Nevada Corporation, SNC. Um, I was a principal engineer, systems engineer on the Dream Chaser program. It's a space plane that delivers cargo to the International Space Station. Uh, They haven't flown a mission yet, but they're currently building the vehicle to fly cargo to the International Space Station. Of the cargo vehicles, you may have heard of Dragon from SpaceX, Also, Orbital Sciences, which was purchased by Northrop Grumman, has Cygnus. Unlike those other cargo vehicles, this is actually not a capsule. You know, those other vehicles are capsules which splash down on the ocean or um, will one day land on the Earth with airbags. But our vehicle actually lands on a runway. So it's a gliding vehicle, a lifting body with wings. Um, And so when it reenters the atmosphere, it looks like a plane 
coming into the atmosphere and then gliding down to a runway. The advantages of that architecture are there's a lot less forces imparted on the cargo that you're carrying. If you look at the vehicle, you can see that it really is tailored for eventually flying humans to the International Space Station. That vehicle is very suited in the long term to be built specifically for carrying astronauts to and from ISS or any other space station. Is it an unmanned vehicle? Currently, it is unmanned. Currently, the contracts that they're um, building for are just cargo delivery. Is there a person with a joystick in a command center? No, there's actually really um, sophisticated onboard software that lands that vehicle. <laughs> but there is a command center, and there are like a bunch of people at a command to the center. Left, left. <laughs> <laughs> to the right, to the right. Slide. No. <laughs> Was this a contract for NASA? Yes, it is. Yeah. So they're executing the CRS2 contract, the commercial resupply services contract, too. So the first one, the first CRS1, the people working on that contract were just SpaceX and Orbital Sciences. And so on the second version of that contract, CRS2, you've got SpaceX, Sierra Nevada doing Dream Chaser. And I can't remember who the third provider is. I think it's also Orbital, which was purchased by Northrop. Sierra Nevada, well, I was going to say they were the smallest company, but I guess technically SpaceX might even be smaller than Sierra Nevada. Sierra Nevada has a large portfolio beyond just the Dream Chaser program. So they do a lot of other satellite contracts and other defense contracts. They work actually a lot with airplanes. And you joined Sierra Nevada right after they won the contract. I actually got hired before they won the CR2 contract. They were actually bidding on the crewed contract and they were not selected for that contract. So after working for the company for two months, I got laid off. And then I had actually already been talking with a, another Northrop office in Colorado at the time. And when they heard I was laid off, they actually called me up and were like, hey, I heard we heard you're available. Come back. So I worked for them for a year. And then when Sierra Nevada competed again for CRS2, that's when I got the contingent offer. And they brought me back on for CRS2. How did Northrop feel about that? I was being kind of underutilized, in my opinion. So I'm not sure it was a bad thing. They were going through a lot of reorganization as well. so. And they worked for Department of Defense versus, say, working for NASA. I feel like you were ready for a new customer anyway. You were pretty excited about that. Oh, yeah. I've always wanted to work in commercial space. So that was working on Dream Chaser is kind of my first segue into commercial space. I'd always worked in the DoD or intelligence communities before that. So um, I was pretty excited. What does a principal systems engineer do? On Dream Chaser, I was part of actually the software team. The software team had a group of really systems engineers that were designing the design documents. Some people might think of them as algorithm description documents for all of the automation and autonomy of the vehicle. So throughout the mission, we have to do a number of tasks. We're just automating it on board. So once the ground operator says, go do this, then the software will go do a bunch of stuff. We also have autonomy. This vehicle has to be able to react in a certain way to some kind of stimulus uh, without an operator being around. So I was on the the team that designed all of those algorithms. So it was it was very cool. You were doing all of the operations of the vehicle, kind of. You know, we had to work very closely with the operations team too to make sure that we were getting it all right. To make that happen, you have to be talking to all of the subsystems. You have to work across power, guidance and control, propulsion, environmental support thermal control. You have to work across all of those subsystems to make sure that when you do one thing on the vehicle, it's safe for all the other subsystems, that you're providing all the subsystems what they need, when they need it. 
That's what I love about systems engineering. It's that integration, problem solving across multiple areas. It's working with a team of people to accomplish something that's kind of greater than any single person can do. You can't just rely on one person to get it done because the vehicle is so large and so complex that it's impossible for one person to do it in a timely fashion. Did you work on the ground software as well or just the software that was actually running on the vehicle? My job was working on the software on the vehicle. Now you're about to take a new job. Yes, I'm in between jobs. I wrapped up my uh, work at Sierra Nevada last week. And actually next week, I'll be starting with Blue Origin, which is another space company. You may have heard it in the news. It's owned by Jeff Bezos. Specifically, I'll be working in their advanced development group, which has a number of exciting opportunities that they're working on. I don't know a whole lot about the company, but uh, hopefully I'll learn more next week. Specifically, I'm excited about joining their advanced development group as a manager of people. Oh, wow. You didn't tell me that. Most engineers are like, do not make me manage people. Yes, yes. Um, And I absolutely felt that way for most of my career. But I'm actually really looking forward to it. So in their advanced development group, they have uh, groups that are organized by specialty. So there's a system engineering organization. And within that, I'll be managing the requirements group. So all the engineers in the requirements group. Shana will tell you, in the past, I kept doors off my resume, like IBM doors (laughs) is a a very traditional requirements tool. Anytime somebody like was looking for a systems engineer to be a requirements jockey, just sitting at a desk writing requirements and and doors all day long, I like ran for the hills. So it's definitely not my idea of what I want to do in systems engineering. I actually gained a lot of perspective over the years. So first of all, people management I've seen organizations that have a matrix management approach like Northrop Grumman, and I've seen companies that do not have a matrix management approach like Sierra Nevada. There's definitely strengths and weaknesses in both approaches. And really, depending on how well you you approach either, you'll have varying degrees of success. There's a lot of opportunities if you do have a matrix management approach. I think you can use that kind of people management side of the house, not only to like sign time cards and do performance reviews, but to also foster a backbone of knowledge to groom a library of expertise. I'm going to be new to the job, so I'm going to learn what are the best effective ways of doing this. But my personal goals for for a job like this are to become the experts in how to do requirements management, requirements derivation, that kind of thing. So anytime a new program is starting up, they know what team they can go to to get guidance on what's the best way to do this. And not only that, to also have the background on, okay, what are the types of governing requirements documents in this industry? Let's not reinvent the wheel every time we have to build a product against this governing document. Let's already have this in the bag and we can roll this out quicker. How new of a company are they? They have been around a while. They have developed launch vehicles that uh, launch and land vertically, similar to what you may have seen with SpaceX launch vehicles. They have uh, a program called New Shepard that's more on the launch vehicle side of the house. They're also taking tourists into space. So they're getting into the space tourism industry, which is something I've never actually been a part of. I hope they give you a discount. Yeah. For some reason, the free ticket into space wasn't part of my offer package, but (laughs) I'll definitely ask about that. How did you grow up as a little girl and end up being a principal systems engineer? What happened along the way? Oh, man. Well, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut. Why? Because it was so cool. Space was cool. I mean, it was exploration. You know, even now, whenever my husband and I go on a hike, you know, we're the type of people who 
whenever we think about turning back, we're like, oh, but there's a bend up there. Why don't we just go around that bend? You know, it's just that that human nature to want to go around the next bend. And we usually have to say that like four or five times before we'll stop and actually turn around. So, I mean, it's just the exploration part of it. It's unknown. You know, uh, there's so much to learn out there. Did your parents do anything specifically to feed that? Did you have a special fostering of STEM and math? Certainly, my mom always pushed me to do well in school, period. Whether it was, I mean, she just wanted to push me to perform high and have good grades so that I could accomplish something in this world and get a good paying job. You know, she has certainly been always a driver. Um, my dad was more of the quiet supporter. You know, he I was an army brat, so he was definitely often away. For a couple of years of my life, he actually lived in Korea while we were living in Virginia. So my mom was definitely more of the every day-to-day driver in terms of doing well in school. She I don't remember her particularly encouraging space in particular or engineering in particular. I'm sure she would have been happy if I was a doctor or a lawyer kind of thing. You know, I've just naturally been interested in engineering. I've I've always been kind of an engineering nerd, science and math nerd, STEM. Was your dad an engineer too? No, he's in the military in the army, and my mom was a travel agent. I don't think there was anything particular that pushed me towards that. Of the things that I knew paid well, I really liked engineering. And you know, for me, it wasn't even that I knew that it paid well. I just like engineering. Do you follow on Instagram some of the astronauts? No, but that's a great idea. I totally should. <laughs> the coolest thing, though, um, at Sierra Nevada, I actually got to work with astronauts. Our program manager up until a few months ago was one of the flight directors, basically the lead director on the ground, John Curry. And then one of our program directors is Steve Lindsay, flew on several missions. And one of our new VPs is also a former astronaut. And actually, one of the astronauts actually just worked right down the hall from me. So I'd, I'd talk to him over the coffee pot, you know, we'd chit chat. He'd be in some of my meetings. I was so nerdy. I actually took like a postcard of him and <laughs> asked him to sign it for me. So I have an autograph of my coworker. Who's That's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> Do they have an air about them? No, they're all so nice. I would say the commonality of all of them is that they're all incredibly nice. They take the time to talk to you. You can tell that they're all extremely competent. Half their job is being a spokesperson, you know? Yeah, well, I think you have to be a great athlete as well to go. Definitely fit, yes. So I recently read Atomic Habits. For me, it was mind-blowing. You know, I started habit journaling. I even bought uh, James Clear's journal for habit journaling. One of the habits I started was meal prepping on Sundays. I think I had a tendency to poo-poo a lot of like people who really put effort into good habits or, you know, like meal prep Sundays. <laughs> Whoops, I don't need that. I just about eat. But I have to say, man, meal prep Sundays is like my new jam. One of the things I've been looking forward to moving to Washington State for is the abundance of Asian food. Like we just went out there to check out neighborhoods since we'll have to move. Wait, wait, you're moving? Yeah, to Washington State. What? For the new job, Blue Origins in Kent, Washington. Oh, wow. Wow. Does your husband work from home still? He does. Yeah. As a software engineer? Yes. Mm-hmm. He works for Misfit Markets. It's like an online grocery service, except that they've specialized in off-market produce and other products. Oh, yeah. That's so cool. Ugly produce yes. sometimes. Yes. There's like a large portion of food gets thrown away because it's ugly. Yes. So you can get like a box of organic produce for super cheap just because it, it wasn't as pretty. Or maybe there was a surplus and the grocery stores didn't need that much. So it, it actually still even looks perfect. It's just, it was surplus. 
So you're moving to Seattle? Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, when? I'm thinking that we'll move in the next couple of months. I don't really have a hard deadline. Do you get to start working from home? Yeah, so I will start the work remotely. Oh, wow. It'll be interesting starting a job remotely, you know? I can't imagine like meeting a whole team remotely. You know, you don't really have that as the same ease of connection when you're meeting somebody face-to-face. Are you looking for more from your career than just a paycheck? At Nyla, we offer that and so much more. Join us for a career where your growth is our priority with generous pay, unbeatable benefits, and a supportive environment that cheers on your every achievement. We're scouting for top-tier data scientists, software engineers ready for something bigger. Ready to be a part of a company that cares about where you're going? We're ready for you. Check us out at nylatechnologysolutions.com or drop us a line at hello at nyla.io. This podcast is sponsored by Nyla Technology Solutions, an SBA-certified 8A, hub-zone, woman-owned small business specializing in full-stack software engineering and data science services to the U.S. government. Our innovative solutions are built to match the speed of mission. For more information, partnering opportunities, and new job openings, please visit our website, www.nyla.io. Did you go to a special high school in Northern Virginia? I did, yes. I went to um, Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, which is a big mouthful. How do you get into that school? There's an entrance exam. What grade do you take it? Eighth grade? Oh, geez. Yeah, I think it's eighth grade. You sit for an exam at testing centers like uh, other high schools and things like that was where you would go. And actually, I failed on my first attempt to get into this high school. So my freshman year, I went to my local high school, Garfield High School in uh, Woodbridge, Virginia, which was a little rougher. You know, there's barbed wire on the fence, you know, that kind of thing. Did you have like a uh, private consultant to work on your areas that you were weak to get you in? What was the difference between the first year and the second year? Uh, Nothing. I just was really motivated. (laughs) So after going to Garfield for a year, I mean, it was just, I imagine maybe a lot of people might feel this way, just unchallenged, you know, not challenged in school at all. I mean, it was so bad that I remember my biology teacher pulled me aside one day and I think she could just tell that I was so unchallenged. And she's like, Chris, if you ever just want to go to the library instead of coming to class, that's fine by me. (laughs) Oh, wow. Wow. So you get into Thomas Jefferson. I took the SATs to get in for my sophomore year. It wasn't local. We had to bus there. So we kind of commuted to high school. How long was the bus ride? It's like 45 minutes. That's a long bus ride for a high school kid. This is pre-iPhones. I think I might have had one of those like tiny, tiny cell phones, like a Nokia in my senior year of high school or something. Oh, okay. Okay. So was it worth it? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I really enjoyed it. You know, I'm an engineering geek. It was focused on science and math. They did have other APs in like history and things like that as well that were very good. It was particularly good in science and math, um, which I really enjoyed. I wasn't the best student. 
in high school or in college. Uh, I just kind of had the mindset that I wasn't producing grades for anybody else. Like it was like, if I wanted to do the work, I did the work. If not, so whatever, you know, <laughs> just didn't really care about the grades as much as my mom did. So I wasn't necessarily a great student, but I just found it so interesting, the subject matter. I mean, as a high school senior, I, I got to take a class in quantum theory, which is just, oh, you know, cool. for a high school student is probably beyond what they should really be doing, but it was still really interesting, you know? Didn't you have to do a senior project as well or a senior internship? Yeah. So you had a choice between an internship or you could do a project. I chose to do an internship. Uh, I worked at Orbital Sciences, actually, as a senior uh, in high school. That was a great relationship that I developed there. I ended up doing a summer internship with them after my senior year as well, and even came back when I was in college as a freshman to work in the summers there. What did you actually do as a high school student interning at Orbital? The project they gave me was creating a power budget for one of their satellites. Um, No way. Yeah. (laughs) I was kind of in a supporting role. Like I I wasn't creating the budget. (laughs) I don't think they ended up using that for um, planning their actual power budget. They were trying to move towards more of a database approach. And so I was setting up the database that they could use for more uh, power analysis, more dynamic power analysis. So I was actually learning a lot of um, Microsoft Access, but also getting to learn about the vehicle and the power budget. Well, I went to college in Virginia and I went to engineering school and a huge portion of the engineering school was made up of these students from Thomas Jefferson. It's in Virginia, in-state school. And I was so jealous of the programming that you had. I mean, I just thought the way that school prepared you for engineering school and to have an opportunity like working for Orbital. I just thought it was just such an incredible, incredible program. So personally, on a side note, I am very interested to talk to people from my high school because there was something special about my high school where a very large number of the AP students who were women ended up being chemistry or engineers. So my high school seems to have graduated a large number of female engineers And I don't know if that was because the math and science teachers were just very supportive or interesting, but we seem to have a pretty large number of scientists or women who went on to produce science or math-related jobs. Now, you go off to a special college. How did you pick where you went to college? I went to Harvey Mudd College in California. I remember when I was looking for colleges, you know, I didn't get into a lot of my top picks, uh, which I think was probably a good thing. You know, some of my top picks were like MIT. And looking back, I now realize that I was probably emotionally immature enough that that probably wasn't a good idea going to a big college. I did like tour like Michigan, uh, which was a huge school. And I remember having the sense of, Uh, oh my gosh, if I go here, I'm going to get completely lost in the mix. Like I knew that I wasn't focused enough on college as it was that going to a big school like that, I would probably, you know, almost just like fail out or something, you know, just start living life instead of focusing on school. Honestly, what drew me to Harvey Mudd was that it was kind of similar to my high school. It was a small school, laid back vibe. You know, in some of the schools, I would hear stories about kind of how cutthroat they were, cheating or um, sabotage against other students, which just to me was such a... And you know that's bad when like you're touring. You're just a tourist. I know. (laughs) Like it's got to be really, really bad if that's like what you're hearing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just couldn't fathom it. You know, Thomas Jefferson is also very nice in that it was, everybody was really nice. You know, you would leave your 
your backpacks in the hallway at, uh, on your eighth period sometimes or, you know, things like that. It was just a very safe environment. I felt that at Harvey Mudd, like kids that would go into the cafeteria would leave their bags out in front of the cafeteria. You know, it was just such a safe, trusting environment. You also didn't have a specific engineering major. Is that correct? Yeah. Harvey Mudd has general engineering degrees. They don't believe in specialization that early in your education. So they would say, if you're going to specialize, you go off to a master's program or a PhD program to do that. They're not a university, so they don't offer those higher degrees, actually. Um, At least at the time, it was very rare. They did have like a five years master's, but it was just, it was more of a four-year college, really. Since they did really focus on breadth before depth, they wanted you to get, you know, just your general engineering BS. And if you wanted to specialize, you'd have to go do that later. It was unusual for an engineering program, but they did things like require a humanities. You had to take so many humanities credits, even though it was an engineering school. You know, I took creative writing, studied piano, foreign languages, and those were all fulfilling requirements for my general engineering degree. Harvey Mudd is known for and has been known as a leader in graduating women as engineers. What was the ratio of female students when you were there in your program? When I entered Mudd, we would say that the ratio was E because we were big engineering nerds. <laughs> so it's <was> about <laughs> one to pi, like 1.3, one to three point, a little over three. So there was about one woman for every three men kind of thing. When I came in, even though we were still a minority, I just remember being surrounded by women through college because that was my friend base, you know, and I stayed with them throughout my time there. How big was your graduating class? Each class was just over a hundred people, actually. It was very small. So like the entire freshman class is in the same chemistry lecture, at least at the time when I was there. Did you feel that there was anything special they did to add to your retention? Not just your retention at the college, but your retention in the engineering major. I think what helped was we had women faculty as well. I do remember uh, several of my professors, if not like 50% were women. Not that I really thought of it consciously at the time, but looking back, you know, it it just felt normal to me for there to be women in the field. I was surrounded by my friends as women and I had professors that were women. I would also say that I really enjoyed the humanities side of it too. You know, it wasn't, we weren't just completely focused on math and science. We had that humanities infused throughout it. It's a very purposeful decision on their part. They believe that even if your goal is to be a tech leader, you know, a, a leader in the sciences, that sciences without humanities is kind of rudderless. You don't have the perspective of society infused in what you're doing, which is a little naive, right? You know, we even had a class, basically humanities and the sciences. The texts we read were focused on how society influences sciences, uh, whether we want it to or not. You know, we're, we're human creatures and what we do is dictated by our human experience. Thinking about how healthcare, uh, which you think should be based on data and science, healthcare is largely influenced by society, you know, um, looking at how erectile dysfunction is covered and birth control wasn't at one point in time, you know. I really enjoyed that aspect of the curriculum there. How did you get your first job after college? When I graduated, it was 2003. There was a slump in the economy. So it took me quite a while to get a job. I think I, you know, I graduated in May and I didn't land my job until August. I basically just submitted an application to all of the aerospace industry 
companies in the area because I knew I wanted to do aerospace. You know, space was kind of my passion. By then, I kind of knew that I, I probably didn't want to be an astronaut. I'm not sure I, I, I didn't really want to deal with the reality of being in such a harsh and punishing environment personally, but I definitely wanted to build, you know, vehicles to, to go into space. And so I just picked all of the aerospace companies in Southern California because I did want to stay in that area as well. How did you finally get a job? What happened? One of the places I interviewed with did respond. It was actually a place called Zontech Systems, which specialized in radars. So my first job was actually working on radars. They were actually using radars to support a number of different flight tests. When the space shuttle accident occurred, the Columbia incident. With Christian McCullough. Yes. This is the Columbia space shuttle that actually broke up on reentry because their thermal tiles on the station had been hit during the launch. That investigation report by NASA, it's a very big, thorough investigation report. It's kind of remarkable if you ever read that. You know, the agency did a full kind of self-evaluation, if you will, to find all of its flaws um, across the agency so that they could avoid a problem like that in the future. Because it, they did find that it was very much kind of an organizational failure, a cultural failure, as well as a technical failure. But one of the recommendations they made was they needed more radars covering their launches of the space shuttle. So one of the programs we did was uh, we used the radars to cover the space shuttle launches, the return to flight after the Columbia accident. What we did was look for debris, any kind of objects, including debris that could have uh, impacted those thermal protection tiles on the space shuttle during launch that could be a problem for reentry. That was a cool job. Lots of data processing. Because of that job, any kind of uh, remote sensing is also near and dear to my heart. I mean, radars and lidars just are cool <laughs> the way they work and the data they, they collect. I always love those. <laughs> Tell me about your evolution to Northrop. When we met, I was in the Northrop Grumman Systems Engineering Associates Program, um, otherwise known as the SEA program, which is a selective two-year program aimed at developing Northrop Grumman's technical leaders for the company. A lot of companies have rotation programs, especially for incoming new hires to get to know, you know, to experience different parts of the business and kind of learn where they gravitate towards. But this was a little different. This program is actually targeted at people who have already been with Northrop Grumman for a number of years. This program was aimed at developing them further into the elite technical leaders for the company. I had been hired on at Zontech, but Zontech was actually purchased by TRW, which was purchased by Northrop Grumman. You know, my first offer from Zontech was on Zontech letterhead, but my revised offer letter was on Northrop Grumman letterhead. So they were purchased right when I was hired. They were part of the mission systems uh, sector at the time, which, no, you know, they've, they've reorged a number of times. Well, they just sold to uh, Periton. So the mission systems organization you used to work for up in our area... Uh just sold a large portion of it to Periton. Oh, wow. Very cool. A large part of our radar business was actually missile defense, evaluating the performance of missiles. It's a fascinating field, but I knew that it wasn't really what I wanted to do long-term. I have always wanted to do space. You know, I had even volunteered for XPRIZE Foundation on the side in my spare time, which was really cool, going to the Mojave Desert when they launched uh, the Ansari XPRIZE, which, you know, that company has now gone on. It's Virgin Galactic now. I realized that I, I needed to get out of the missile defense industry, and this rotation program was a good way of doing that. So my boss actually nominated me. Um, I was accepted. And for four years, I got to move around Northrop Grumman to all different kinds of locations. So I've worked at Space Park. You know, I've worked in uh, a number of different locations in the Washington, D.C. area, you know, Fairfax, Annapolis Junction, where we met. 
How often did you rotate? The SEA program is two years, four rotations. So it's about six months per rotation. Um, it really taught me how to get up to speed in a short amount of time and provide value in a short amount of time. They also um, subsidized training. So um, we got additional systems engineering training, particularly in NCOSI. So I have since become a certified systems engineering professional, a CSEP. Nice. Yeah, it's an application process as well as an exam you have to pass. It was a great experience. The people were great. I learned a ton. I highly recommend it. While we worked together, I believe you started pursuing your master's in electrical engineering? Yes, at Johns Hopkins University. I feel like I tried to influence you to get your master's in computer science, but (laughs) you went with electrical. Why? Why did you double down on electrical engineering? I don't remember if I started the program before we met. I believe I started it when I was actually still working um, with radars. It was a different part of Northrop. It was actually in Maryland now, but I was working with a lot of airborne radars at the time. I've also always had, as a female engineer, and I've heard this from other women engineers as well, I also had this fear of being interpreted as being soft in the technical areas. It was my perception at the time that others saw female engineers as good candidates for management because they weren't necessarily the people you wanted that wanted to be deep in the engineering math that you had to do or the engineering tasks that were purely technical. And I already knew I was a system engineer and I liked being a systems engineer. I like integrated problem solving and that's why I like being in system engineering. And system engineering even also has kind of a stigma as being a soft engineering discipline. I was a female engineer. I wanted, I knew I liked system engineering, which is already a, kind of a soft engineering. And so I, I wanted to back that up with more of a technical degree. And I, I was really interested in radars. That's why I did the electrical engineering at Johns Hopkins. And they had uh, actually specialized in antenna design for, for radars, which was a fascinating subject, which I really enjoyed. Well, I'll put you together with Brian on that because he's super into antennas. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, very cool. Yeah. We just had a, a meeting with this R&D company who specialized in machine learning, mathematical models as it relates to aerospace, which is a lot of systems engineering really is the projection and the statistics and the use of modeling for determination of how things will happen and occur. And I made the joke at the end of the meeting that Brian and I met in the middle of the OSI stack. <laughs> And they laughed and laughed. (laughs) (laughs) I was so happy that joke landed that they loved it. Now, I think it's really interesting that you got your master's in electrical engineering based on that perception. And I don't know that you and I have ever talked about that. But one of the major reasons I studied computer science versus, say, getting my MBA and moving into a software company was I instinctually felt that there was going to be a bias against me and I wanted the most rigorous degree. And not only was it just enough to get a computer science degree, but that I needed to get it from an engineering school. And even still with that, people routinely implied that I was not smart because I feel, and I don't know if you agree with this, that smart equals technical. So it was like, Shana's not technical. And my professional experience has been people seeing me as an engineer and actually having done that deep technical work is still kind of a cocked head where they have it. So, Oh yeah, I'm nodding my head vigorously here. Yeah, yes. so my experience was really negative working as an engineer 
and not in running a company. What has your experience been like? You had such a wonderful high school. You had so many young women at your high school that was a technical high school. You went off to a college that had a higher degree of women and a higher degree of educators where I did not. What was it like for you in your professional experience? So in general, in my career, I haven't looked around and thought, God, there's no women here. That's happened to me a couple of times. I've been in a couple of meetings. There seem to be a couple of disciplines, engineering disciplines that you do find less, even less women. I've found myself in a GNC, a guidance navigation control design review. It was a conference room full of maybe 50 people. And I was literally the only female in that entire world. Um, And that's not uncommon for GNC teams. So I've seen teams that are definitely more male. But since I've been in systems engineering, you do, I think, tend to find a higher degree of women in systems engineering groups. Um, So I personally haven't felt that on a day-to-day basis. And I've even been, that specific meeting as well, I've even been cut off repeatedly when trying to make a point. Just blatantly cut off repeatedly by multiple people in the room, not letting me finish my concern. And they didn't listen to me until another man in the room said, guys, she's right. We should be listening to her. It took another man to (laughs) stand up and say that. Until they were ally. Yes. I thank God for that ally. But it just, you know, it still happens in some places. Now, I will say that's the exception in my experience. Um, In my experience, specifically in my last job, I worked with a team that had wonderful women managers, wonderful women directors, and wonderful women teammates. In fact, it was about 50-50 on my last team of women to men. Um, and I really enjoyed that. And, and, you know, even though we are talking about women in the industry, also all of the men on my team were great teammates, you know, just there are yeah. so many great guys that we work with. You're also biracial. Has that played any part in your positive or negative experience? I don't think so. I tend to be kind of unobservant. You know, I'm an engineer <laughs> and an introvert, so I, I'm less aware of these types of issues. I have felt being a woman more than I felt being biracial. One thing that I have been really concerned about in my life, in, in my career, is is being too pretty at work. Oh, God, yeah. I don't mean to toot my own horn, you know? Like, if you're a woman in a male-dominated workforce, it doesn't take much to be seen as pretty, right? And in an engineering field, to me, being pretty is, like, detrimental to people seeing you as a technical person, you know? And so I think more than being biracial... Um, What I really felt more than that was just, I would try not to be too pretty. So dressing down, you know, I would never wear makeup. My mom would always say, why don't you, you know, why don't you dress up a little bit more? Look nicer at work. You know, you're a professional now. You should dress up, you know, do your hair. And I would tell her, there's no way I'm going to try to look, you know, I'm not going to make myself up at all. I want to look like an engineer. And if I, (laughs) if I dress up at all, that's out the window. No, I agree with that completely. I mean, I think also you had the benefit of being with your husband younger, which takes away some of the perhaps tension or people talking about you from a potential romantic sense. And Mm -hmm. I was on the market for some portion of time. And I felt as I got older and I'm very married, a lot of that issue has dissipated as well. Now, what's interesting to me, and I don't know if you ever this had experience, I don't recall ever really having a boss, male or female, that was a bad experience. My positive and negative experience came more from teammates uh, who I think saw me as a threat. I never really had a boss, male or female, that was particularly bad or particularly great. But yeah, I can relate to the being pretty thing. Well, thank you for sharing your experience. Are you doing anything to help the younger women as they come up? You know, I think things are getting a lot better in general. 
just as we have more and more women in the workplace, um, I, I mentor engineers, including young women. I was particularly glad that I could take part in the Brooke Owens Fellowship, a fellowship for young female aerospace engineers in particular that are looking for internship opportunities in the aerospace industry. So you can look online for the Brooke Owens Fellowship and um, apply there if you're interested. My personal connection to it was that I was a friend of Brooke Owens. And so Brooke Owens was a year or two older than me in the aerospace industry and just a great energetic person. Uh, You know, I tend to be kind of the classical introvert engineer, but she was just so outgoing and she was ahead of me in terms of going out and trying for these jobs. I remember her describing when she was actually working at the White House at one point for their commercial space office, kind of working on uh, budgets for commercial space. I remember asking her, like, how did you get this job? Like, what possessed you to think that you could interview for this job? And she said, you know, I just went in and said, you know, look, I've worked with these guys. I know how they think. And uh, just kind of was very honest about her experience, her personal experience, and just laid it out there, matter of fact. And she got the job. I try to channel that that energy when I mentor young women engineers. Uh, some of the women that have come through the Brooke Owens Fellowship Program have impressed me beyond measure. I mean, they were infinitely more qualified and mature than when I was their age. You know, I'm constantly impressed by the younger generation. I truly think they're definitely going to be leading us in the future. They're more emotionally intelligent as well as just more technically qualified as well. You know, they're getting involved earlier in these technical fields. So I do my part. I try to mentor them and share my personal experience with them and give them advice one-on-one. That's how I try to do my part. Is she still alive today? No, it's the fellowship was set up in memoriam. She passed from breast cancer. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so it was very much a shock. She was just uh, one of those people that was larger than life and really needed more years on this earth. If you could go back and do anything differently with your career, would you? And what would you do? I would say that I wish I hadn't let my perception of what other people thought of me shape my career so much. You know, a lot of this interview, we've actually talked about, you know, my choice uh, in an electrical engineering master's was driven by wanting to overcome that perception that I'm not technical enough. There are other things that also um, I let shape some of my choices, being afraid of what other people thought of me. So one of the things that I also shied away from was, you know, managing people. I'm glad that I'm now getting into taking a functional management role because I think that's how I can really help not only people individually, but building what I think is really lacking in a lot of companies today is actually building that backbone of expertise. We lose so much knowledge between programs, executions. And I think aerospace companies today, one of their differentiators could be having that solid engineering expertise background, you know, that they can execute programs more consistently at a higher quality over and over again. So I'm glad that I'm getting back to that. I'd say specifically one of the things that I regret is since I spent so much time trying to be technical and and building up my technical chops, you know, I didn't want to be seen as soft. I didn't really read a lot. I also poo-pooed in my mind a lot of like self-help books, if you will, or professional growth books. So I never really read professional growth books until the last couple of years. So some examples are like Stephen Covey's, you know, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People or Atomic Habits or Leading Change. I would never read these types of books early in my career because I just felt like they're, you know, they're just about business and people and I'm technical. I don't need to read those. But I've learned over the years that even the most senior technical person on your project, take a chief engineer even. That chief engineer could be the smartest prodigy in the world, but if they can't share their knowledge effectively with the team and know how to work the team to get done, to impart that wisdom and then get the team working along that vision, then they're useless. 
in this modern day and age, we're working on incredibly complex systems and trying to deliver them on timelines that are ridiculously short. That's just the speed of business today, you know, the, the speed of financing those programs. And so trust becomes a major factor in how fast you can actually execute and just communication skills for an engineer. When I look at myself and how I can advance my career at this point, I've actually seen that I've held myself back because I didn't read those types of books earlier on. My communication game is not as strong as it could be. And so I wish I had got ahead of the curve on that type of thing. You know, it's interesting. One of the stories I learned from my last on-contract job was how important a simple anchor image was So you could write this whole document and pool in all this data and artifact. But a lot of times, one, people want a summary. And then imagery speaks so much to people. There was a great book about how to convey things through imagery that actually I felt really advanced my engineering effectiveness of us actually focusing on the correct goals versus moving fast towards the wrong goals. What book that you've read made a really big impact on you professionally? The first book in this genre that I ever read, I think is still the most impactful because it just opened my mind to the fact that these personal growth books aren't just about growth professionally, but they're about growth personally too. So I would say um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is probably the one. I think if you read it, you realize that it's much more, it's deep. It's kind of like, you know, look at yourself and and are you really listening to people or are you just waiting for for the chance for, so you can talk? You know, you're never going to have trust with somebody unless they can trust that you're listening to them. So it, it talks a lot about, you know, reflective listening, just really basic principles for how that should govern your life and then how they will reap benefits when you bring those principles to the workplace as well. It's not just about work. So that really opened my eyes. I, I really enjoyed that book. I got to reread it. I remember from it, the key principle of making sure you're working towards the big goal, that you're consistently not busy with the small things, but that you're really constantly working and working and ticking out towards your, your large goal. And I interpret that to be applicable to personal life because you also think about, am I just doing a bunch of urgent things because they at work, everything seems urgent, but what's really important in my life? You know, spending time with my family is important. Before we go, tell me something about yourself that might surprise us. My side hobby, I am trying to write a novel, a historical fiction fantasy novel. (laughs) It's slow going, but it's really fun. Even if I never finish it, I'm just really enjoying the process. It's kind of inspired by the Outlander series. The premise is going to cover the uh, late 19th century in Colorado, like where the... um, kind of the last public execution was held, but also when the transcontinental railroad was trying to finally finished, you know, all of these new possibilities and kind of contrasting it with actually um, a different timeline in Korea when Japan and Korea and China and all those countries were first being exposed to Western culture and England, Americas, uh, those countries are first starting to make contact with those cultures, in particular Korea. It's a great outlet. It's a way for me to learn about it and also make it fun and write about it. How far along are you? It's a series of three books. Uh, I've written outlines and started fleshing out like in scenes in the outlines, but I haven't like written any sections for real yet. That's incredible. That's really <laughs> exciting. I, yeah. You did surprise me. I had yeah. no idea. Yeah. Any last parting words? 
Thank you for having me on the podcast. You know, I, I've always admired how you try to give back to the community um, and support women in STEM through your blog, Smarty Pants, and then also through this podcast. So um, I'm a full supporter and I th- I'm just glad that I could be a part. Thank you so much. I am glad we're friends and that the conversation after all these years flowed as easily. I love talking to you and we got to make this not happen again with years between. Yes. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Thank you so much, Chris. It was such a pleasure to hear your love of aerospace and space exploration and radars <laughs> and for being my friend in that cold skiff together. I... uh definitely miss you from being around here and I wish you all the best in your move to Seattle. Thanks, Jada. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Please be sure to share it with friends and family. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn under the Outspoken Podcast. Thanks again and chin up, heads up, eyes forward.